The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. Well, City Rev, great to see you here today. For those of you who are here in person, glad that you're here. If you are joining us online, uh, thank you for joining us and being here today. Um, If you're our guest, glad to to see you here. We always love seeing new faces around here, so we're glad that that you're here. Hope you join us again next week. We'd love to see you back. And before we uh, jump into our our text today that we're going to study, a little reminder, especially men, a reminder of what is coming next week. Of course, you guys know what's coming next week, right? What's what's next weekend? Mother's Day. Two people knew that, okay? So I'm glad I'm reminding you. It is Mother's Day next weekend, and so um, just a friendly reminder. As one of your pastors, I want you to be ready. Um, But also, ladies, you wield a a power 365 days a year. You wield a mom power, but it is never as powerful as superhuman as it is on Mother's Day. You wield power over your family. So let me remind you, it is a great time to leverage that power to get your family to church, whether it's here in person or even say, hey, I want us all to gather in the living room um, to watch church online. You can do that. And the reason that's such a good idea to do is because it's an opportunity for your family to hear the message of the gospel. So don't forget your mom power. Leverage that this week as we're going uh, into such a a wonderful holiday this next weekend uh, where we can celebrate our moms um, and we'll, we'll have an opportunity to share uh, together in worship and, and share the gospel as well. So looking forward to next weekend. We're going to open up a passage of scripture today, but before we go into our Bible study time, let me just pray over this time that we're going into. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I ask that as we open your word and we hear some of the profound words that you spoke to us and for us, Lord, I, I pray that you would just sink these seeds deep down into our hearts. You know where we need to hear these. You know, thank you that you're the type of God that knows exactly what we're walking through right now. There's no one here who's a stranger to you. You see us. Thank you for seeing us. Thank you for knowing exactly what, where we're at and caring. So Lord, just speak through that today, we pray, out of your word. We want to meet with you, and we lift this up in Jesus' name, amen. Recently, my wife, Rebecca, and I uh, have been buying board games for our kids. So uh, the older two are now old enough. We've graduated from Candyland, which I am very grateful. Any adult here can say that they've played Candyland before, okay? That's a labor of love, Candyland. Um, the game Candyland requires zero strategy, okay? There's nothing to, to employ your mind for in Candyland. So I was very grateful when we graduated from that game to some, some classics. So we got Shoots uh, and Ladders, okay? Anyone played Shoots and Ladders? We have any Shoots and Ladders um, competitors, okay? Um, and also the game Sorry. Anyone played that? The game of Sorry, yeah, that's a common one. And, and that's where things are getting interesting. So here's the scene, you know, we'll all sit down on the floor, at least Rebecca and I and the older two, and the youngest, she's two, little Hope, she's not ready for Sorry yet, but she still wants to be involved. So 
Her idea of getting involved is to walk onto the board and sit down and send pieces everywhere, okay? So what we have to do is then get some pieces and put them aside for hope. Okay, these are the ones that you're going to play with. And then inevitably, the, what I think happens in almost any household when you have board games, especially if you've played them a lot, is over time, you lose the pieces, and so, like, right now, our game of Sorry is pretty new, okay? Like, you know, the, the top of the board game hasn't been bent and ripped, and the board's not bent. And, but eventually, what I know is we're going to go to play Sorry, and there's going to be, like, someone's going to have, like, two red pawns and then, like, a penny and a cashew, okay? And then someone's going to do have the yellow pawns, and one, one of them's going to be, like, a paperclip, okay? Because you lose the pieces, and while that bothers me to lose the, the sorry pawns, like that bothers me, in the end, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to hunt these down. I know it happens, and it's not that, that big of a deal. I'm not going to search very hard for these pieces. But that's not true of other things that we can lose that are of more value. And I was thinking this week when I was thinking about that dynamic uh, about my, my buddy, and I remember this conversation we had about 10, it must have been 10 plus years ago. But uh, we were hanging out. I was going to meet with him, and uh, he was already there, and he, he had his, his laptop open, and I see him, like, searching, like, very focused, like, on the computer. And I said, hey, man, what's going on? And he shuts his computer, and he pushes it back with this deep sigh. He says, well, last night, um, my, my wife and I, he and his wife, they fairly newly married, and um, they were um, cleaning up the kitchen. They were washing the dishes and stuff. And he says, and all of a sudden, while we were cleaning up the kitchen, we hear this clinking sound. And we looked down, and my wife had taken off her engagement ring, placed it on the counter, and it had gotten bumped. And when we went to try and find it, it was gone. He said, man, I was so bummed because I, that, not only is that just... That's so sentimental. I mean, that's what I gave to her when I proposed to her, but that's like one of the most expensive things that we have in our possession, okay? Like, that's a really expensive thing that we have, and we couldn't find it. And he says, look, we looked everywhere. I mean, we're, we're like looking down the drain. We're like looking, like taking pipes off and looking at them. We're doing things we'd never done before, like pulling the refrigerator out and looking behind it and looking with a flashlight under the oven. He says, like, we looked everywhere for that. We tore that kitchen apart, and we couldn't find it. He said, so when you were walking up just now, he said, I, I was looking on my, my laptop. I was, I'm realizing it I'm, looks like I'm going to have to buy her another engagement ring. And he says, and I, I'm just, I'm really bummed about it. So we talked about it, and, and I was, you know, just commiserating with him, like, man, what a, what a huge loss. And I was thinking about the difference between how he was looking for that lost engagement ring versus how I might look for a lost sorry pawn. And it's very different. Those are two different whole ballparks. And, and here's what I would say to you. That when something is lost, you can tell the value of that item by how fervently you look for it. So, for example, like uh, there's things that in your life that may be of value to you that wouldn't be valuable to me and vice versa. Maybe something sentimental. But you can tell immediately how valuable it is to us by how how diligently, how feverishly, how, how passionately we look to try and find it. Now, I share that with you because there's something, there's something in our lives that we have got to make sure that we do not lose. Right now in this season, there's a lot of discussion about um, physical health. 
And, and there, that as should be. Like, we work hard to stay physically healthy. Those are great conversations. But over this last year, there's a growing concern for the, res- what's ha- the results of what's happened over the last year. There's a growing concern in addition to the mental and emotional and spiritual health of, of our society, of us. And so what I want to talk to you about is something that if we lose, it can have deep impact on our spiritual, emotional, and mental health side of our lives. Something that we don't want to lose. I want to take you to a, a passage in the Bible. I want you to see what Jesus said about this. It's in Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at the first couple verses here. Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1. And I want you to hear these words of Jesus. They are... They're really unbelievable. And before we get to this, these words that Jesus spoke, I want to read just the first couple verses and kind of set the context for what was happening. Um, this is Luke 15, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Let's pause there for a second. Before we hear what his parable is, a beautiful parable, before we get to that, let's just set the context. Jesus was speaking to crowds all the time. And there was two particular groups in this crowd that day that he's speaking to, and he's intentionally responding to them and telling them this parable. But I want to look at these two groups. The first is the group, the Pharisees. Now, that may be a term you've heard before. Who were these Pharisees? The Pharisees were the religious elite. They were very, very religious. In fact, it was like their full-time job. Their goal was to live the most perfectly moral and perfectly religious life they possibly could. They would dot every I, cross every T, down to the tiny little details of like how many steps they took on the Sabbath. I mean, like every single detail of their life is, is worked out. They're trying, what they're trying to do is they're trying to live lives that are so moral, so religious, that God would look down from heaven and be like, well done, you, you did it. That's what they're trying to do. You have the super religious over here. Then he says there's this other group. He says that they're tax collectors and sinners. Now, just as a reminder, tax collectors in an ancient uh, context, in this ancient context, it's not just people whose job it is to collect the taxes for the government. They're doing the best they can. It's, it's their job. They're making a living, and they're just trying to do it as honestly and faithfully as they can. That's not this context. The way their tax system worked, it was basically, it it was set up knowing these tax collectors would cheat. They would take more taxes than were actually due, and that's how they would be compensated. And many of these tax collectors got very wealthy doing this. And not only that, they're taking taxes not just for the local government, but for the occupying government. This is Israel, but Rome has conquered them, and so they're taking taxes for Rome, and most of these people were Hebrews. And so you've got this person who grew up in this town, grew up with this people group, and now he's serving the occupying army, taking taxes for them, and cheating his own people. You can imagine, like, in a town like that, like, how hated these tax collectors. They betrayed their own friends. They betrayed their own people. They betrayed their own towns and cities they grew up in. Hated. There's these tax collectors. And also in that same group were sinners. Now, this is not talking about, like, 
how theologically, you know, every person is a sinner before a, a holy God. This is meaning like these were notorious sinners. These were people like, if these are the super moral and super religious, these people were the opposite. They are not religious and not trying to be. They are not moral and they don't care who knows. It's like in this group of notorious sinners, it might be this woman and she works at a brothel in town and she doesn't care that everybody knows it. This guy may be standing there too. He's, he's been out drinking all night and even though this is happening in the morning, he still smells like booze and he doesn't care. Maybe this guy here runs a company there in the town and, and he's very crooked in how he handles it. He's cheating people, but he's just trying to get rich. Everybody knows it. He knows everybody knows it. And he just doesn't understand why other people don't do that too. These are people that would say, yeah, I am not religious. I'm not moral. I'm not pretending that I am. You got super religious and irreligious. You've got super moral and amoral over here. And of those two groups... One was grumbling about Jesus, and one was drawn to Jesus. The Pharisees were grumbling. Interestingly, it's the same word used to describe what the people of Israel were doing in the wilderness towards Moses and Aaron and towards God. And now God is with them in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and the religious leaders are grumbling towards him. And what are they grumbling about? I can't believe it. Do you see that? Do you see who he tolerates to sit under his teaching? Do you see who's here in his presence? In fact, I wanted to come hear Jesus, but I don't like being near those people. I can't believe that those people are here hearing that. I, I, that just, that's unbelievable. And Jesus welcomes them in. I can't believe that he welcomes them in. But here's what's so interesting, and this is worth just pausing and thinking about for a second. I mean, we could spend the whole time on this just one dynamic, but let's just pause and think about it. Whatever it was about Jesus, the, over and over again, the eyewitnesses say, this is not like a one-time occurrence. Over and over, the eyewitnesses tell us that this group over here, the tax collectors and sinners, they were drawn to him. It's not just that, you know, they're on their way, you know, back to do something, something bad and like, well, I guess we'll just hear what this preacher has to say. I'll stop in for a minute. No, they were riveted. They were drawn to Jesus. I mean, what was it about what Jesus was saying? What was it about his demeanor, his facial expressions, the way he acted? What was it about Jesus and what he said, his message, that was drawing this type of person to himself? And I got to tell you, it wasn't as simple as, well, you're fine. You be you. I'm not going to try and change you. That, that wasn't it. Because that's what all of their friends said. I mean, why would that be anything new? They wouldn't be drawn to someone who's just saying everything else that, that all their other friends said. No, that wasn't what he was saying. And, and it's also not what he's saying because whatever it was that he did say, they were so drawn to him that they left completely changed, transformed, so different. There's something about Jesus that drew that type of person. And let's just stop and ask some tough questions for a second. Does my view, does your view of Jesus and what you understand Jesus align with that, how you understand the message of Jesus, does it align with a message that would make the most irreligious and amoral say, wait, I got to hear more about that? How about my life, your life? As the presence of Jesus in where you work, where you live, your neighborhood, your workplace, your extended family, your family, 
If you are the presence of Jesus, is that the dynamic that's happening in your life where those irreligious, amoral, like those that seem farthest from God, do they witness our lives, they witness your life, they witness my life, and do they just kind of roll their eyes or do they say, look, I don't get you and I don't understand what you have to say, but man, there's something about you that I, I don't, I got to know more about. How about us collectively as a church? Is our church reflecting if we're lifting up and revealing Jesus, is it reflecting that dynamic of who Jesus was? Is, it, is that what we see, that people who seem to be the farthest from Jesus, they're, they're being impacted by our ministry? Is that what we're looking for, what we're going after, what we're expecting, that those who are the farthest, that this same dynamic is happening in our own day where people that are so far from God are coming and drawing near because they just need more of Jesus and who he is? This was the dynamic of Jesus, and the Pharisees grumbled about it, and so Jesus told them a parable. In fact, he actually tells them three parables that are part of one set. He tells them a parable of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And they're kind of all building to this crescendo, um, and and they're incredible how they interplay with each other, but we're just going to look at the first one today, this parable. So let's see what he says. Let's jump into verse 4, Luke 15, 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now we're going to look at one more verse in a second, but that's the the end of his parable. He, He starts it with this question. He's wanting to stir up a question. He says, okay, which one of you would do the same thing? So they're like, okay, you got the Pharisees over here. You got the sinners and tax collectors over here. They're saying, okay, tell us the story, and we'll see if we can relate. So then he tells the story. Imagine you're a shepherd. You have 100 sheep, and one of them goes astray. So you're, you, you get to the, wherever you're going, whatever pasture you're going to or whatever, and you count your sheep. And you're like, whoa, there's 99. You count again. You count a third time. You're like, wow, I've, I've lost one. He says, which of you wouldn't do this, where I'm kind of assuming that they would. Like, wouldn't you leave those 99 in the open country and go hunt down that lost sheep until you find it, pick it up, put it on your shoulders and carry it back, put it with the flock, and then celebrate with all your friends, I found the lost sheep. Wouldn't you do that? Now, I, I don't know about you, I know very little about sheep. I'm not even 100% sure I've seen a sheep in real life, okay? Like, I don't, maybe you have, okay? So I actually don't know how to answer that question. I'm assuming they did because they're from more of an agrarian society. Like, I read that and I'm like, I don't know. I mean, is that, would shepherds do that? I, I don't know, maybe you know. I, is that a normal thing? So I, I had to look into this a little bit. Let's walk through this parable. There's a couple things to consider. First of all, there's the ratio, 99 and you lose one. It's not a person who has one sheep and loses it. They have 99 and they lose one. So let's just work this out into, in our own lives. Like, let's imagine you have $100 and you have it in $1 bills. And you, you're bringing it out of your car. You go in, into your home and you're at the kitchen table. And you're like, okay, I've got this $100 here. And you start counting it out and you get to the end you have 99. 
And as many times you count it, you're like, okay, I've lost a dollar at some point. I want to ask you this. Think about this. How long would you look for it? You're like, is it under the table? Is it under the chair? Maybe like you, you, you like, like look, is it, oh, that's annoying. I, I, you know, I had a hundred. Do you go back out to the car? Maybe you look under the seat. Maybe you look around, did it blow away? Like at some point you're like, well, it's just a dollar. I've got 99. It's just 1% that I've lost. I've got 99 others. And you cut your losses and, and you move on. So I, I don't know. Maybe you look 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. I, I don't know. Probably different for all of us. But you, you've lost one. There's a ratio, one to 100. Let's up the ante a little bit. Let's say you own a car dealership. You have 100 cars. You come in and you check your inventory and you're down a car. You bring in your guys and your gals and your leaders and your managers. You say, hey guys, a car is missing. And we need to find it. Okay, that's not okay. We have to have 100 cars. What happened? Did one of the deliveries not, not deliver the car? Did someone break in? Okay, you guys track down the transportation company that brought the car. You, you guys check with corporate. You guys check security cameras. Maybe it got stolen. I want you to think about, think about something. If you are the owner of the dealership, how long, how much resources do you, do you put towards finding that lost car? I mean, do you go um, and do litigation? Like, how, many, how much are you willing to spend an attorney's I mean, how, how much of your company resources, if you have, you still have 99, but you've lost one, how much company resources do you exhaust finding that one car? Six months? A year? One month? Like at some point you say, okay, we got to cut our losses. I don't know what we're going to, to say to whoever we report to, but we cut our losses. We at least still have 99. There's a ratio issue that you got to consider. There's another issue here. There's a risk factor. The risk factor is what he says, and it's very interesting. This is debated among Bible scholars and commentators because he says this. He says he leaves the 99, and did you notice where it says he leaves them? It's not in their home pen. He's not like, okay, let me take them home, put them nicely behind a gate, and then I'll go find it. No, he leaves them in the open country. Now, some scholars will say, well, surely there are other shepherds looking around, looking after him. I mean, there'd probably be in a group that got another shepherd to watch the sheep. Jesus didn't say that. He left it open-ended. Well, I mean, probably it was a nice, neat, very cozy, comfortable pasture with a nice, you know, babbling brook. You know, isn't that what Psalm 23 says about the Lord being our shepherd? Like, he probably left the 99 in a nice pasture. The challenge with that is the Greek word that we're translating here as open country, in every other instance in the New Testament, it's translated in one of three ways. Desert, wilderness, or desolate place. There's something risky happening here, and he's leaving it open to their imagination. It's an open-ended question. They're probably wanting to say, before I would tell you how long it would, I, I, whether I would go after that sheep or not, I got to know more questions. What'd you do with the 99? And he doesn't say. So let's just say best case scenario is they're not home. They're in an open pasture, and you leave the 99 to go find the one. I want you to feel, as you're walking away from that 99, your concern for sheep that can go anywhere. I want you to feel as you've gone, you've searched for like, what, an hour? And now you're calculating the risk. You're saying, okay, I just walked an hour. That means it's another hour back. What's happened to the 99 over the last two hours? Did, did more go away? Like, am I going to come back and now there's only 85 left? Did another shepherd come by and steal all the 99? Like, I want you to feel with every passing hour how your blood pressure would rise as you're wondering about how the 99 sheep are doing. 
It's a little bit reckless what this, what this shepherd is doing. It's risky leaving the 99 in open country to go find the one. But the last thing to consider in here, okay, would we do the same if we were the shepherd? The last thing to consider is there's a real labor that you've got to analyze here because it says when he finds the sheep, he picks it up and carries it home. Maybe the sheep was in trouble. Maybe it couldn't get out of where it was. Maybe it was trapped. Maybe it was hurt. Whatever it is, the shepherd labors to carry it back. Now, every single time I've seen this depicted, whether it's a stained glass window or a painting or a coloring page, every single time I've seen this depicted, there's a shepherd and he has this neat little cute newborn lamb like over his shoulder. Can you picture the image? And he's got a shepherd's staff and he's walking through a nice gentle pasture with this little lamb. And I look at that lamb, I'm like, that's got to weigh like what, like eight pounds like that little lamb? Okay, so I was curious and I Googled it, okay? How much do sheep weigh? Because Jesus doesn't say it was a newborn lamb. He used the just generic word for sheep. He left that open-ended. Maybe a lamb, maybe full-grown sheep. Let's hope he was thinking of a lamb because a full-grown sheep can weigh 300-plus pounds. That's why you've never seen that depicted in stained glass, okay? Can you imagine that picture? Like someone's like the shepherd just laboring under this huge woolly sheep. It's like, what are you doing, man? Like, I could walk, okay? Like, you don't see that on too many coloring pages. There's a labor associated. So he gets to the end of this. He looks at the crowd and, wouldn't you all do this? I mean, which of you wouldn't do the same thing as that shepherd? You leave the 99 in open country. You go after that one, that one lost one. And then he says, until you find it. Not until the risk stresses you out too much. Not, not until the point where he says, I, ca I can't calculate taking this loss anymore. Not until like, you, it's, the day's over. Until You go until you find it. You hoist it on your shoulders and then you come back. Which of you wouldn't do this? And by the time he's done with the parable, they're looking around like, I wouldn't. I'm not doing that. It sounds Really reckless and dumb and a bad investment. Cut your losses, you got 99. That's the whole point of this parable. He's leading them to all look to themselves and say, I wouldn't. But there's someone who would. There's one more verse I, I want to read where he explains the point of his parable. But if you're a follower of Jesus... And some here, you would say, I don't know that I would call myself that. And that's great. I'm glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm glad that you're journeying with us. But for those of you who would say, yes, I, I follow Jesus, you already know where he's going with this parable. You know the point. Because you've lived the point. It's your story. It's your faith. It's your hope. It's what eternity, the, your eternal existence hangs in the balance of this point that Jesus is making. Here's what he says. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He looks out at these groups, and I wonder if his gaze kind of goes over to those Pharisees 
Because here's what he says. You want to know, Pharisees, what makes heaven applaud? I mean, Pharisees, you're striving so much to, to just to get God's approval and to prove that you're holy. But he says, you want to know what gets God's applause? You want to, you want to know what throw, what, when a party breaks out in heaven? He says, you, you want to know what it is that makes the, the angels in heaven, the glorious ones who a single angel can take out an entire earthly army, these mighty warriors of heaven where they say, shh, Come here, come here, look what's happening. Where they lean in in awe, these same angels who see all the mysteries of the universe. They see galaxies burst into existence. They see the brilliance of undiscovered coral reefs with all of the the beautiful colors of the fish. They see deep into the rainforest. They've seen all of the creation. And yet what stops them in their tracks and which cause tears to roll down their cheeks, what cause them to cheer is when they lean forward and they look down and they say, a lost sheep has been found by the shepherd. That's what brings joy to heaven. And he's, I wonder if he's looking past the Pharisees where he says, look, where you're striving with the burden of your spiritual chores just to try and prove to yourself, see God, I get your applause, right? Because I'm doing all the right things. I, I deserve your love. I deserve your acceptance. You're lucky to have me and all my righteousness, God. And he's saying, no, what God is after is seeing the lost come to him. Jesus is so clear. You want to know what breaks heaven out into a party? It's when the lost are found. It's unsubtle. Jesus is saying, here's my priority and my purpose. In fact, he said something very similar. He said something in another town one day called Jericho. And there was another tax collector who had grown very rich and was very hated, and the man also had a disability. And so when Jesus is coming down the street, everyone was edging him out. He wanted to just see Jesus. He was one of those really lost people that that said, man, it's something about Jesus, but everyone's like, no, not you. I'm not going to let you see. And so he asked, what does he do? He asked to climb a tree like a child. It's okay that in in his mind that he's humiliating himself. He climbs a tree to spot Jesus. And Jesus comes down and he stops in front of that tree. And of all the crowd, he says to him, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today, to the, the gasps from the crowd. And he goes to to Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus is broken. He's met by Jesus. His life is completely turned around and transformed by Jesus. And then Jesus says this in Luke chapter 19. He reveals, this is my whole purpose. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's, It's not mysterious, my priorities. My purpose and priorities are the, are the lost. What brings joy to heaven is seeing a lost sheep that, that's found. If you're a follower of Christ, that's not news. You know this. And you know this because you remember when you were found. Some of you, your story is um, maybe more like one of those, the tax collectors, you, you know, in the sense that you say, look, I have, like, I remember when Jesus met me because I, I had everything. Everything was going great. I, I had the career. I had the money. I had the security. I had the popularity. I had the praises and the respect. I had excess. I had everything in excess. And what was crushing me was that all of the excess was empty. 
And so I'm looking on the horizon of the world and saying, is this all this world has? Because there's a hole inside of me and I, I can't fill it with anything. I've got everything the world has to offer and it's not enough. Is this all that there is? And you say, under the, the, the crushing weight of the emptiness of excess, that's where Jesus met me. And what I needed is I needed to feel something real. I needed to feel the, the presence of my creator entering into my life. I needed to feel that gaping, sucking hole in my life filled by something real. And, when, and you say, when I experienced the power of God in my life, when he met me, I felt his presence. Something changed in me. And although, although I had everything, it became as nothing to me. And Jesus has become everything to me. Some of you, that's your story. Some of your story is like, no, no, I'd, I'd be on the other side of that. I, man, when Jesus found me, I, I had nothing. I'd lost everything. I was broken. I was rejected. Maybe you lost your health or lost your finances, lost your job, lost your relationship, lost your friends. Maybe you found yourself isolated and alone and you say, look, I, I, I identify with the broken sheep that needs to be carried back. You say, look, I... I know for me, you say, look, I was helpless. I needed hope. I had no hope anywhere. You say, I was broken. I needed healing. I didn't dare even look at the horizon, but I see coming over the hill. Could it be the shepherd has come for me because I was in all of my brokenness and shambles, but he cared enough to come and find me. You say, that's my story. Others of you say, look, I, I, I was like that Pharisee. I grew up in church. Man, I, you say, I tried to do everything just right. I followed all the rules, and I expected all the blessings to come from the rules. But man, I just was crushed under the weight of that. And eventually, man, when, I, when that crushed me down and I made some mistakes, I just couldn't deal with it anymore. And I, I ran from the church. I don't want anything to do with the, the church and all its empty promises and its legalism. And I, I ran from all religion and I got myself in a mess. And I felt like I had totally turned my back on all that I, I, all that I had grown up under. But one day Jesus came and found me and I couldn't believe that even though I couldn't earn his love, he gave it to me anyway. You see, I'm a recovering broken Pharisee. And the shepherd came and found me. Some of you say, no, my story is I'm like that, I'm like that notorious sinner. You say, I wanted God's love, but I couldn't possibly believe that he could love me. And I got myself so entangled and, and such a mess Maybe some kind of sin addiction. Maybe some kind of substance abuse. Maybe some kind of problem. You're like, my life is in shambles. Who would want me? But then Jesus came and found me. And he brought me out. And he didn't stop looking until he found me. See, we know that why there's joy in heaven. Because remember what it was like when he found us. You know, there's um, something that we need. It's something we draw strength from. We, we draw our peace and our, our, our sense of love and our capacity to love. We, our spiritual health, we draw so much strength from one core foundational truth that we were found. And he didn't stop looking for us until he found us.
Don't lose that. Don't lose that you were found. Don't lose that you were found. Hold on to it. Cling to it. And if you cling to that memory and that truth that he came and found you, it changes things in your life. It, it, it fuels you. It refreshes you. It, it strengthens you. It, it just changes things about you. Don't lose that you were found because if you don't lose, if you can hold on to that, if you don't lose that you were found, here's what then happens in your life. Your preferences go farther down on the priority list. Because if, if you don't lose that you were found, if you remember that you were found, then, then you, you don't mind, you don't care. It's not a big deal that he is leaving you in the open country to go find the lost sheep. You're okay with that. You're, you're, you're supportive of that. You want him to do that. It's okay that he's leaving you in the open country. Whether that's a pasture or a wilderness or a desert or a desolate place, you're okay with it because you know he went and found you and you want him to go find others. And so because of that, your, your preferences go way down on the priority list. You, you become like Paul when he said in Corinthians, to the Jew, I'll become a Jew. To a Greek, I'll become a Greek. I'm, I'm okay with reorienting me, with reprioritizing me, with, with changing my preferences just so I can reach more. It's like we read today. You, you, can, you can say, as Paul said in Philippians, you can say, look, I know how to abound. I know how to be in want. I do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm okay that Jesus has a mission to reach the lost. I'm, I, I'm, my priorities are aligned with his, and I'm okay if he leaves me in the open pasture, the desolate place, the desert, the wilderness, if he needs to go find that lost sheep. It's because sometimes our preferences rear up in it. We forget how important it is to reach the lost. We can, we can bring our preferences to our church. And man, when I start building a church or expect a church to align with my preferences, I'm basically wanting to make the church in my image. And the church is the bride of Christ. She's made in his image. It's not about my preferences. Those are lower in the priority level. It's also not about my rights. There's a lot of conversation in our world about rights. Yeah, I have the right to do this, or you can't take away my rights to do that. A lot about rights. And, um, you know, the early church fought about the subject of rights, too. And they fought about silly things when it comes to rights. Really silly things. They fought over one prominent thing that they fought over is what kind of meat you're allowed to eat. And so they would show up at the, um, at the marketplace and there was some meat that had first been offered at the temple to, to an idol. And obviously the idol's not living, so it doesn't actually eat it. So then they say, well, let's make some money off it. So they take it back down from the idol and then they sell it in the marketplace. And so Christians would go to the marketplace and they'd be like, whoa, this meat had already been offered to a pagan, pagan god and that's pretty much against everything that I stand for. Am I allowed to buy it and eat it if it's already been offered to a god? And there was one camp that was like, look, I'm free in Christ. I don't believe that idol's a real thing, so of course I can, I can eat that. And other groups were like, how dare you do that? 
Don't you know what you're doing? Like, you're supporting something that you can't possibly endorse. And there's this huge argument about, about their rights. And it all boiled down to something silly about eating meat. And so Paul addressed it. And here's what he said. He said, actually, um, that idol is nothing. So you're actually right. You do have the freedom to, to eat that meat if you want. Because an idol is nothing. It's an imaginary thing. But then he said this. But your rights don't matter. You were enslaved to sin, and now you're a slave to Jesus. You've surrendered your rights. And the priority now of your life is to surrender your rights for the cause of Christ. You surrender your life in order to show love. Love is a, gra- is, love is a greater guiding principle then you're right. See, we surrender, we, we surrender our preferences, we surrender our rights. If we can hold on and remember and not lose that we were found, then we're aligned with his priority and his purpose to seek and to save the lost, whatever it takes. It not only just changes our preferences, our priorities, but it changes our focus. One of my favorite verses, my wife, Rebecca, showed this to me for the first time. It's one of her favorites, too. It's out of Proverbs 11. It's so interesting. It says, Those who water others will themselves be watered. And the meaning is, as another translation is, as you refresh others, you yourself will be refreshed. You know, there's, um, after a season like this, with challenge and trial, difficulty, crisis, A lot of times there's so much difficulty that we can be processing through and it's important to actually process that through with the Lord and with a trusted uh, friend. But at some point we can get in our own trials, our own difficulty, we can get so, as we're dealing, walking through that and suffering through that, we can get so inwardly focused that it actually starts consuming us. And one of the healthiest things that we can do to get us out of that trial and get us out of that difficulty is actually have an outward focus of refreshing others. And that does something as we watch someone be refreshed. It actually refreshes ourselves. It's one of those powerful tools in the arsenal of a Christian to be a part of refreshing others, which refreshes us. The pastor I grew up under used to say this. If you find yourself in a dry spot spiritually, share your faith with someone. So simple. But when you see someone electrified by the gospel, it will remind you of what it was like when you first found the gospel. What's happening? You're remembering that you were found. Church, don't lose that you were found. Don't lose that. Hold on to that because this is what a critical season to follow after the shepherd and be a part of his mission to seek and to save the lost. That's who we're called to be, who we've always been called to be and who, we've all, who we always will be on mission with Jesus for what he's, he's after. You know, um, that friend who lost their engagement ring, a couple weeks later I saw him and I asked him uh, how he was doing. He says, oh, by the way, I never came back and told you what happened with the engagement ring. I said, oh yeah, tell me what happened. He said, yeah, a couple days later, I was standing in the kitchen, and I was just standing there, just like, man, how did we lose that ring? Is there anything that I, anywhere that I didn't look? I mean, where could it have possibly going? It doesn't just vanish. And he said, I stood back, 
And I looked under the counter, under the ledge, and where like the baseboard of the counter came together. And there's this one little spot, he says, there's one crack. I mean, it had to be like a half inch, maybe a centimeter. There's one crack that went under the cabinets. And he says, like, I'm looking at it like, look, it would take a miracle. I mean, it'd have to be like one in a million for that engagement ring to like bounce and then perfectly roll into that crack. He said, but I looked everywhere else. So I got a hammer. I pried open underneath the cabinet. And I'm looking at a space that no one has seen since the guy who put in these cabinets, whoever, whenever it was. Because I'm looking back there and sure enough, right through that crack, sitting right there, was the engagement ring. And I was thinking about that. I said, man, I have never looked for something as hard as he looked for that engagement ring. But I showed you something. How valuable that Can you consider what it says about you? The great lengths the good shepherd went to to come and find you. What does that say about you? Almighty God in heaven who made everything, all glory and honor and praise and worship is due him every millisecond of all of existence. And yet he humbles himself to enter into his creation as a tiny human. And yet he's rejected, treated with injustice. He's accused of things he didn't do. He's beaten. He's mocked. He's spit upon. He's abandoned. He's rejected. They, they whipped him. They nailed him to a cross. He's crucified. And there's the glorious one, his body maimed, blood dripping down, unrecognizable on the cross. The author of life giving his life up and dying on a cross. Buried. And rose again on the third day. He went to all of that length, all the distance, all the way from heaven to earth. And he's, a, he's been after you in your life, arranging things in your life to find you. That's who you are. You praise him? That's who you are. And here's what I believe. I believe that there's a lost sheep that's hearing this right now. Maybe you're watching online and you're all alone. Maybe you wandered in here and you don't even know how. And if you're a 99, can you just stop what you're doing and pray for that one right now? Because I believe there's one that you're seeing how he's arranged your life to this moment. And the shepherds just come over the, the horizon. And he wants to pick you up in all of your pain and brokenness and carry you back to the fold. Let him come find you. Turn to Jesus today, please. If you want to do that, just surrender to him in a simple prayer. I want to lead you in that prayer. Would you take a moment and bow your head and close your eyes? If that's you, then in the silence of this moment between you and God, I want, I want you to pray these words as if they're your own. I want you to repeat these words to God. Just silently to him, he hears you. I want you to say these words. God, thank you for finding me. I didn't find you. You found me. Thank you for loving me that much. Thank you for seeing me. I 
follow after you now. I give you my life and I know you'll carry me home all the way to heaven one day. I believe that. I'm now a part of your mission to see other lost sheep be found. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that was your prayer just then, here's what I want to ask you to do. One simple thing. If, that, if you just prayed that and you were found by Jesus today, I want to ask you to do one little thing. Would you grab your phone? I want you to go on your phone and I want you to go to the browser to cityrev.org slash faith. Go to cityrev.org slash faith. Here's the thing. If you were found, if you're a lost sheep and you've been found, you've been brought into the fold. You're part of a larger flock and we want to journey with you. It's just going to ask you a couple questions. Here's why we're asking you those questions. We want to send you a Bible and we're going to send that your way. So go to cityrev.org slash faith and fill that out so we can get in contact with you. Church, we're going to close with a song today, a time of worship. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to reflect on the tremendous, unbelievable, unmatched, risky, reckless love of God to chase us down and find us. And I want you to think about this, and I want you to take this moment to engage in worship. Some of you, you're going to stand, maybe close your eyes, or maybe you're going to sing, maybe you're going to raise your hands. Others of you might want to stay bowed at your seat. Some of you may want to get down on your knees. Some of you may even want to come forward and worship, but let's take this moment to reflect so that we don't lose that we were found. Let's sing this back to him. Would you stand with me as we worship together? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.